Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 45. If you don't have your Bible with you, there is a blue Bible in the pew in front of you. And I think it's page 521. I should have checked my bulletin. If you have a bulletin, it's in the bulletin. Psalm 45. We have just jumped back into our series in the psalm that we commonly do during the summer. And Pastor Dan has preached through Psalms 42 through 44 so far. And this morning we open with Psalm 45. Hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a mascot of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Have you ever noticed that we love love? Don't we? We love it. We crave it. Romance novels are the top-selling book genre. And not only are they the top sellers, 
It's not just a recent thing. It's been a theme throughout history. Some of the greatest novels have love as the theme covering their pages. Think of the tragic love of the great Gatsby. Or think of the faithful love of Penelope and Odysseus and the Odyssey. One of the oldest works of literature that we have is a love story. Or think of the many movies or shows about the comedic and joyous love of Pride and Prejudice. No matter what kind of love it is, we are infatuated with love stories. It's just in us. Even James Bond is really about a love story. And this morning, we come to Psalm 45, a love song, as we read in the superscript. However, to be honest, we didn't need the superscript to tell us that this is a love song. Everything a good love story has is in this song, right? You see this king of unmatched beauty, valor, and righteousness. He puts Prince Charming to shame. And then we come to the bride who's preparing for her wedding day. She is arrayed in glorious garments, surrounded by her friends. She is so full of joy and glory that she is literally glowing as the sunlight shines on her and reflects from the gold that covers her. This is a great love story. And just like us, this psalmist loves love. Look at verse one. He says, my heart overflows with this pleasing theme. He can't wait to tell you this love story. He loves love, just like us. However, as we read this story, it seems to be a notch above any other love story that we might have read or are familiar with. This king seems to be above any other king. He's called God himself. And then this bride is receiving honor that no other bride, no matter who you are or what princess you may be, receives this kind of honor from all of the nations coming to her. This is a different kind of love story. This is an idealized love story about an idealized king and his great romance with his wife, with his bride. And what the psalmist wants us to see from this great love story is, all, is twofold. His point, or points, is that the king is gloriously beautiful. He's going to spend half of the psalm just telling you how beautiful this king is. The king is gloriously beautiful, and he is worthy of his bride's complete devotion. That's what we need to leave Psalm 45 with as well. The anointed king of God is gloriously beautiful, and he is worthy of his bride's complete devotion. To see this, we're going to break the psalm into three sections. Section one, starting in verse two, is the beautiful king and his righteous reign. That's verses two to nine. The second section, the glorious queen and her costly call in verses 10 to 13. And then the third section is the awaited wedding and its unending joy. 
the beautiful king in his righteous reign, the glorious queen in her costly call, and the awaited wedding in its unending joy. Look back at verse 2 with me, and let's take a look at the portrait of this beautiful king. We're just going to read verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. In this verse, the first thing we're told, right up front, the very first thing the psalmist wants you to know about the king is he is good looking. He is handsome. More handsome than any of the sons of men. The word for handsome is literally beautiful. It's the same word that the groom in the Song of Songs uses for his bride. This is a striking beauty, a beauty that you do not forget. But immediately, the psalmist explains where this beauty really lies in the king. It's in his words. You're the most handsome of all the sons of men. Grace pours from your lips. Or grace is poured upon your lips. What this means is the king, he's not one who says lewd or hateful things. He doesn't tear people down with his words. He doesn't speak slander. He doesn't mock people. He doesn't harass. He speaks words of grace to you and to all. Grace is poured upon his lips. His words are true and uplifting. He builds up. He heals. He comforts. The psalmist explains that this is a sign that God has blessed him. The ESV unhelpfully puts a therefore. It says, therefore God has blessed him. It's more because God has blessed him. His beauty in his words is evidence that he has been anointed by God. That the words he speaks have been given him from God. And so he speaks for God. Now just imagine, just imagine for a second, we don't have a king, maybe we should, I don't know, debate, but we don't have a king, but we do have political leaders. Imagine a political leader like this. Imagine a political leader that's not just charming and tells you what you want to hear, but a political leader whose words declare true peace and joy and love and freedom. They are sweet, not just because they're charming with a smile, but they're sweet because it's a wave of grace that comes upon you as you hear his words. That's this king. That's what he's like. That's what his words are like. And his beauty is not just heard through his words, it is also seen in his character, in what he fights for. So looking in verse 3, we see that this king, he is a warrior king. He is a warrior with a sword strapped on his thigh. He is called Mighty One. It is a phrase used for God throughout the Psalter. He has splendor and majesty. He's beautiful with his words, and he is frightful with his sword. And what he fights for, though, 
is truth, meekness, and righteousness. He is a mighty king who fights for truth. He fights for what's right. He never goes into battle uninformed or misinformed. He never goes into battle with false pretenses saying, yeah, we're really going to go do this, but he's actually wanting to do this. He fights for truth, for what is right. And he has no ulterior motives. Not only does he fight for and in truth, he has a meek righteousness. A meek righteousness. We see meekness and righteousness. These words are hyphenated, saying it's one idea. He's not, he doesn't fight for truth, so he's known for good because he has a meek righteousness. He wants truth for truth's sake. He wants righteousness for righteousness' sake. How contrary is this king even to ourselves, friends? We think it's much easier to pursue truth and to pursue righteousness when it's easy or whenever we're going to be recognized for it. But it's a lot harder to do it whenever it's costly or no one sees it. Pursuit of righteousness can too easily be a pursuit of selfishness, not selflessness. But this king, he pursues it for its sake because it's true and because it's good. He has a humble righteousness. And friends, like the, the psalmist just keeps piling it in here. I don't know if you've noticed this. He's just piling it in here. He's beautiful. He speaks grace. He's true. He's righteous. He's humble. And he's victorious. He's a king that doesn't fail. His arrows are sharp, and all the king's hearts are pierced by them, and they fall under him. Every power, the greatest power, the most powerful king, the most evil villain, the most difficult obstacle, they're nothing. They're nothing to this king. This is the king who comes charging into his enemy's lines, unflinching and unopposed, and just wipes them out. There's no one that stands before this king in opposition. And then we see, finally, verses 6 and 7. We see the result of his victory as well. Starting in verse 6, we'll read verses 6 and 7. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is the psalmist speaking to the king. Keep that in mind. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We see that this king is victorious and receives from God this eternal throne. He's called God himself. He hates wickedness. He rules in righteousness. And he is the gladdest and most joyful man in all of creation, in all of the universe. He is anointed with gladness. This is the king you want, right? Don't you want this king? Why, why would you want any other king? <laughs> this king is amazing. Can you imagine a better king? This is the king of joy, the king of grace, the king of justice, the king of truth, the king of humility, 
the king of goodness, the king that sets all things right, the king that overcomes wickedness, the king that loves righteousness. He's the king, friend, that woos you with his words, and the king that judges and conquers his enemies with unmatched might. That is your king. That is the king your heart wants. He is fearfully beautiful. And here's the good news. Christian, you're probably saying, come on, get there. Here's the good news. Hebrews 1.8 says, this was said of the Son. This was said of the Son. This is not plucking a verse out of context because he's citing verses 6 where it says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's not pulling a verse out of context. It's not making this allegory. This author of Hebrews is saying, this king is Jesus. This king is King Jesus. Jesus is the one whose lips had grace poured upon them and who pours out grace from them. To the, the woman who was bleeding and just wanted to touch his garments and he heals her. To the grieving parents who are crying as he raises their children from the dead. To his murderers as he pleads for God to forgive them. To you, Christian, by grace through your faith as he says you are forgiven. He pours out grace upon his lips. And Jesus is the one who rode out for the cause of truth and in meekness and righteousness. He's the beautiful king who humbled himself in meekness to take on our ugliness. He took our sin, staining his purity, and he didn't demand recognition for it. He did it for the sake of the Father's will and for his People, he gave his life up without asking for recognition. And Jesus, friends, is the victorious king who overcame the greatest enemies of death and sin. As he was put to death, he took into death with him your death and the wrath of God that your sin has deserved. And when he rose, friends, his arrows had pierced into the heart of his enemies, and they did not rise, but he rose victorious upon sin and the works of the devil. And now he reigns in righteousness. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He has been exalted by the Father, and he is the Lord and the Christ. He reigns in glory. And friends, Jesus is the king that loves righteousness and hates wickedness so much that he is going to return and he is going to put wickedness to death forever. John gets to see our king as he comes. In Revelation 19, Jesus is the one sitting on the white throne who John says is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an eye, a rod of iron, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, that's King Jesus. All of it, from the gracious lips to the mighty 
conqueror, both the beautiful and the righteous judge. Christian, that's your king. That's your king. In C.S. Lewis' book, A Horse and His Boy, he illustrates this for us. This is late in the book. If you've read it, one of the main characters, his name is Shasta, bless his heart, has a very hard life. Very hard life. And as he's going, he's almost at the end, and he's trying to catch up with a party before him. But he's in this fog. And he's on this, this horse that doesn't talk, unlike some of the good horses in Narnia. He gets one that doesn't talk. He has no one to talk to. He's in fog. He's lost. He's hopeless. And then all of a sudden, he has a sense that someone's with him. He does not know who this someone is, but later, after they have a very wonderful conversation, when the fog lifts, he sees who his companion is. It's a lion. It's the lion. It's Aslan. It's the great lion. And Lewis writes about Aslan. He says, no one saw anything more terrifying or beautiful. Nothing more terrifying or beautiful. That is King Jesus. There is no one more terrifying or beautiful. Why? Well, because he is the beautiful lion whose presence with his people provides comfort and joy and rest. And yet to his enemies, he is the terrifying lion that is fierce and powerful whose growl will shake you to your core to where you can't even stand before him. This is King Jesus, the humble ruler and the righteous destroyer of wickedness. He's the beautiful king who reigns in righteousness. Now I want to make a couple of points of application from this, from the portrait of our king. First, in the darkest valleys of lament, our king is a light to give us hope. If you've been with us for the last two weeks, Pastor Dan preached Psalm 42 and 43 and then Psalm 44. And these are like walking downstairs into deeper darkness of lament as you go. Psalm 44 ends crying out to God, saying, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. They are Jasta, lost in the fog, at the lowest point. And then Psalm 45 opens up and says, a love song. What a jarring transition. The psalmist doesn't just love love. He knows the power of love, friends. This psalm is the answer to the pain and to the darkness of the cry of God's people. It is the glorious king who will come and who will right all the wrongs that they have lamented who will establish justice, who will not lord over them, 
but who will speak tender and gracious words to them. He will heal their wounds and comfort them. God's anointed king, Jesus, is the light in the darkness of Psalms 42 to 44. And so friend, I don't know what sorrow your heart bears today. Maybe you're plagued by loneliness. Maybe you're hurt by the words of family or other members that you, or friends or coworkers. Maybe you're sorrowful. Maybe you're facing depression or in depression. Friends, the psalmist doesn't, it's not a quick fix, but he's saying, open your eyes and see your king. See the king of beauty and the king of righteousness. You've been wronged, this king hates wickedness and he loves righteousness. You've been hurt by words, this king never will hurt you with his word. You feel helpless and out of control, this king reigns on his eternal throne. Behold your king. Because not only is he your king that's far away. Look at verse 11. We'll talk about it more in a minute. But verse 11, the king will desire your beauty. This king desires you. It means he wants you, friend. It means he loves you. It means he, he craves you. He longs for you. He aches for you. The darkness you face, you do not face alone. You have the light of your beautiful king beside you, protecting you and loving you. So behold your king. There is nothing that compares because he will give you hope in life's despairs. And a related point. First, behold your king. Second, friends, we need to behold our king for who he says he is and for what all of scripture says he is. We live in a world where we can kind of cherry pick what we want and we kind of declare our own truth apparently we need to behold our king for what all of scripture says he is and he is not a tame lion he is a glorious beautiful gentle and fierce lion that we should never be ashamed to point to the gentle and lowly jesus and say that's my king we should never be ashamed to point to jesus on the cross and say that's my king and we should never be ashamed to say points to the Jesus who judges wickedness and declares what is right and wrong unashamedly, we should never point at him and say, and be ashamed and say, that's my king. He is your king. Celebrate love and take comfort in your king. At the end of this section, then, we see our king, we behold our king, half of the psalm is dedicated just to our king. But then we get a new character. Look at verse 9. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. We see this queen in verse 9. And in verse 10 shifts to like a princess. What's happening here is the psalmist is describing it's kind of a scene shift. He's looking at the king in all his glory. And he's going to break scenes and go over to what was spoken to that queen on her wedding day. He's going to go into the bridal chambers and speak to her. It's a flashback. It's a common technique in the best rom-coms. It's a flashback to before their wedding. So verses 10 through 13, what we're going to see is the glorious bride. But we're also going to see 
he has a very costly call as well. Look with me, starting back in verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. Okay. So we need to note two things about this bride. First, she is as glorious as her king is beautiful. She is glorious. The word there for glorious is used throughout the Old Testament for kings and royalty. It means weighty. It means that her glory and her value is unmistakable. It's distinguished. But second, her glory is seen not because of any intrinsic value of herself, but it's seen in the way that she is arrayed and revered. She is decked out in gold. I mean, notice that verse 9 and then verse 13. She has gold all over her. As a bride, her robes have gold woven into them. It shows her purity, but it also shows how treasured she is by the bridegroom she's going to be taken to. And then as a queen, she is standing. She stands in gold. All this gold attire is how God addressed Israel, or how he dressed Israel In Ezekiel 16, he explains, whenever he called them out of Egypt and when he redeemed them, um, Exodus 19 says he made them his treasured possession. So God's looking back on that in Ezekiel 16. And he explains to them, he says, I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. She's covered in gold. Everything that can have gold has gold. Why? Because he treasures her. Because he has washed her and made her pure. Because he loves her. That is the bride we're looking at here in Psalm 45. She is glorious, not on her own, but because she is treasured by the king and he has covered her in the most precious and beautiful ornaments. In verse 11, we talked about it just a second ago, it says that the king will desire your beauty. This means that he craves her. His affection is upon her. It means he wants nothing and no one other than her. She is everything. And daughters of kings surround him. Verse 9. He is surrounded by the daughters of kings. And he looks at her and he says, I want you. I want you. Christian. Church. You are the bride. 
the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that the church is the bride of Christ. Paul in Ephesians 5.32 is talking about how marriage is a picture because the king has come and laid down his life to secure for himself his bride, the church. You are the beautiful king's beloved one. You are his treasured possession. You've been bathed in his blood, washing and cleansing you from all of your sins. She is, you are pure and gloriously arrayed in, her, in, in Christ's pure white robes of righteousness. You are his treasured possession and his heart desires you. His heart never cools, his love never fades, and his eyes never wonder. Christian, you are the bride of this king. And so, knowing the love of the king for the bride, knowing who the bride is, what is the bride's call? What's our call as the church? Complete devotion. In verse 10, we read words that are somewhat shocking to our 21st century ears. Verse 10 and verse 11. We hear the psalmist say, Hear, O daughter. Do you note the tenderness there? He doesn't say, Hear, consider, incline your ears. He says, Hear, O daughter. Listen. Hear, consider, incline your ear. He's saying, Really listen to this. This is really important. Forget your father, forget your people and your father's house. As a princess from a foreign land, she has lived her entire life with a different king, in a different kingdom, with a different way of living. But now, she is being married to a new king, and she is receiving a new king, and a new kingdom, and a new way to live. She is to forget her father's house, and instead, verse 11, she is to bow to her new king, acknowledging him as king. See, she doesn't just get a husband she doesn't just get a lover, she gets a lord. And as her lord, she is called to bow to him, to be completely devoted to him, to abandon every other love. Any love that competes is gone. Because I'm bowing to my lord and my king. Christian, as the bride, this is our call. We are to forget our homeland and our old king, the kingdom of darkness, as Colossians 1.13 explains, the Father has delivered us from the domain, the kingdom of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In Christ, you have a new king and a new kingdom, and you've been ransomed from your futile ways to follow his ways. You have a new way to live. This is our call. So what does it look like? What does it mean? How do we actually see it? Foremost, it means that we don't get to pick and choose what decrees of the king we think we should follow. It's complete devotion. All the decrees of the king are to be obeyed. Now while that may seem hard, friend, have you not seen his love for you? 
Have you not seen his beauty and what he's like? Consider the cross where he took the ugliness of your sin upon himself. Consider his heart that he desires you. Not the social media you. Not the you on a good day when you fix your hair and you woke up on the right side of the bed. Not you when everything's going well and it's about 73 degrees outside, humidity's not too high, and the birds are chirping. But you, when you wake up and you're a mess, you, he desires you. And do you think, do you truly think that anything he calls you to do is bad for you? That's Paul's argument in Romans 8. He's shown his love for you on the cross. What else is he not going to give you? Only good. Only good. We do not bow to a tyrant, but we bow to the king who loves us more than we can ever know. To illustrate this, the other night, Esther, my wife and I's four-year-old, is a firecracker. If you haven't met her, you should. Um, she didn't want to go to bed, like most nights, like every night. I told her, I said, baby, it's time to go to bed. To the immediate response of, I don't want to, with eyes welling up with tears, the lip coming out, mixture of anger and sadness. So I said to her, Esther, Daddy loves you, and he knows what's good for you. Do you believe me? A slow nod. And I said, honey, you can obey Daddy. It's, it's good for you to rest, and I want what's good for you. I want you to be happy. You can trust me. Now, did that work with a four-year-old? Absolutely not. Like, let's be, let's be real. Like, that did not work with a four-year-old. But with us, friends, when we see our king, and we know that he wants you, and that he loves you, and that he gave his life for you, he desires you, that he's gracious and good, that he's mighty, and he doesn't love wickedness, he loves righteousness. We can obey him because he's good. We can give him our complete devotion. We can say no to the sharp words that we want to say. We can say no to making judgments of others. We can say no to that website. We can say no to division that we feel creeping in. We can say no to buying into the world and saying that's what's good and right. We can say no to those things and we can say yes to forgiving one another. We can say yes to speaking grace to others as he has spoken grace to us, to being patient with one another to seeking out one another, to bearing one another's burdens, to forgiving one another's sins against us. We can obey him when it's as easy as going to bed or as hard as forsaking all that we have. He is the good king worth giving our complete devotion. And before we move on, look at verse 12. What happens when the bride is not completely devoted to the king? Or actually, better yet, what happens when the bride is completely devoted to the king? That's where it is. What happens when the bride is completely devoted to the king? The nations are drawn in. The nations are drawn in. Our obedience to the king is directly related to the nations seeing the glory of the king because they see his worthiness of our love and they see the goodness that he gives to us. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Alas, I mean, anytime a quote starts with alas, right? It's got to be good. Alas, 
Worldliness abounds. The church is defiled. And the glory of the great king is veiled. Only when the whole church leads the separated life will the full splendor and power of Christianity shine forth upon the world. Friends, as we obey our king, we show his loveliness. We show his worthiness. And the world is watching. We are adorning ourselves with righteous deeds that show just how beautiful and wonderful it is to be the king's bride. So we obey our king with complete devotion for our joy, for his glory, and so the nations will see him and come to him. So we've seen the beautiful king. We've seen his righteous reign. We've considered the glorious bride and her costly call. Now, let's look to the wedding. Everybody loves weddings. This is the awaited wedding in its unending joy. In the last four verses, we see the bridal procession, if you will, right? So in verse 14, in many colored robes, she is led to the king. So she's probably in another building in the city, and they leave it, and they're heading to the palace, and she is surrounded with celebration. Everyone is celebrating. Everyone is singing. The moment is finally here. This glorious bride is going to be given to her beautiful king. You can just imagine it. Everyone is just beaming, and all they can do is cry out with joy. And not only is it joyful, then in verses 16 and 17, the psalmist turns to the king. All the yous there are for are masculine. So he's turning to the king, and he says to the king, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This procession is joyful. And it's leading to this joyful wedding. But this is only the start of an unending joy in this kingdom. There will be children and there will be sons to not just to be on the throne, but to cover the earth. The earth will be covered in princes of this king. And the king isn't just going to be known as a good ruler and probably forgotten or put on a tapestry that no one else looks at ever again. His name will be on the lips, the forefront of everybody's mind, the song of everyone's praises for eternity. Friends, this is a picture of the wedding awaiting us. While our king has come once, and he has brought us into his kingdom, this is the day we still wait for. This wedding will be the greatest moment in all of history. Again, Revelation 19, the Apostle John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. A little scary, a little dark. But what's all this power crying out? Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 
John is seeing this glorious preparation of the church for the, bride, for the groom to come and get her. He's seeing that she's covered in all of her righteous deeds. It's fine linen that everyone sees. And after the preparations are made, and after Jesus comes with sword on the thigh and fire in the eyes and sword in the mouth, after that Jesus comes, chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, God the Father, is bringing new creation down to the king, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Christian, there is an awaited wedding of unending joy. There is a day coming when the Father will take away, take the bride and give her to the one who will eternally embrace her in his everlasting love. Richard Baxter is a Puritan pastor and he wrote on this saying, Christian, believe this and think on this. You shall be eternally embraced in the arms of that love which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting. Of that love which brought the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, for the earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory. That love which was weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spit upon, crucified, pierced, which fasted and prayed and taught and healed and wept, sweat, bled, and died. That love, what we're looking at, will eternally embrace you, Christian. In his embrace, there will never again be pain or tears, loneliness or heartbreak, death, sin, or evil. We will be healed and we will be held by the one who loves us more than any other. So friends, why do we love love? Because we want it. Our hearts seek it. thirst for it. We want to be loved by this King. And if you trust in Christ, Christian, you are loved by this King. And friend, if you look to another King, why would you? How could you? Through faith, in this king, bowing to this king, brings you into the eternal embrace that will warm your heart and will never let you go, friends. He has paid for you and he invites you to come. Christians, let us behold our king, let us trust our king, let us obey our king, and let us wait with anticipation and joy for our king's coming to get us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you this morning that you have spoken to our hearts that crave love so much. And we thank you that you haven't pointed us away from you, but you've pointed us to your son. We thank you for the love that he showed to us upon the cross. We thank you for the love that he shows to us in his spirit, giving, him, giving himself to us as his presence constantly and we long for the day when we can see the fullness of God 
in him as we peer into the one who loves us the most as we look at his face. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk with great anticipation. Help us to put on the robes of righteous deeds so that those around us would see the beauty and worth of our King. And Father, help us to trust and rest in him, in his work and in his love, that it is enough. We pray that you would do this so that your glory would be known, so that our hearts will be like this psalmist, overflowing with joy. And we pray this so that the beautiful King will be worshipped by all of his people. Pray in his name. Amen.